And I, I hope that your Thanksgiving prayers, especially if you sat around the table and was uh, giving thanks for the meal, that your Thanksgiving prayer included your salvation. Because that's what Peter is trying to, to help us understand. He's setting the stage to teach how Christians should respond to persecution. That's what we're in right now. He's just setting the stage for the instruction he's going to give us. His theological basis for salvation, reminding his readers and his listeners that no matter how bad, no matter how difficult the persecution or circumstances might be, they can hold on to their salvation with confidence. That's where he's leading us. And he's uh, reminding us that no matter how bad the circumstances might be, we should never stop rejoicing about our great salvation. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 96, 2 says, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. From day to day. Do we do that from day to day? That's a good admonition. Uh, Peter's reminding us of all of this. First of all, he started, if you remember, in the first couple of verses about election. And then he encourages us to dwell on our salvation, dwell on our inheritance. So we're going to be looking at that, and it's reserved in heaven. The source of our inheritance is God. The motive is God's mercy. The appropriation of the believer's inheritance is to be born again. The nature of the believer's inheritance, it's been saved up force in heaven where nothing can get at it and um, the security of the believer's inheritance is that it is in heaven waiting for us and then uh, Peter goes on to teach us that our salvation comes with a confidence or a surety a reason to be joyful and he we studied the surety of our inheritance, the surety in a proven faith, surety in a promised honor. That was last week. And this week we're going to go on with it. Surety in a personal fellowship with Christ. Personal fellowship with Christ. So in First Peter, if you would turn there, please. We're going to be, begin with verse 6. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 reads, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We looked at those verses last week. And... Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter says here, you love someone you have not seen. You believe in someone you have not yet seen. And that word believe is the same word that we see that's used for trust. It's used for faith. 
So you trust in someone you have not seen. You have faith in someone you have not seen. Is that true of you or not? There's your first question. Is that true of you or not? Do you love someone you have not seen? Do you believe in someone you have not seen? And this is a love and a belief that are not natural. You talk to someone out there in the world and and tell them that, that you love someone, but you've never seen them. And they'd say, you're crazy. And then you'd say, you actually believe in this person. You trust in this person. You have in this per- faith in this person, and you've never seen them. They'd probably say you were crazy. But why do you do that? Why do you love the Lord? Why do you believe in the Lord? The simple answer is, we're commanded to. We're commanded to love the Lord, and we're following his command. We were at one time commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and we did that. So all of this comes out of obedience. Uh, Jesus mentioned this. Uh, You'll recognize this in John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you now have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You're blessed just because you believe without seeing. Who was he talking to here? Who was he talking? Now, John 20, towards the end. Was it Thomas? Thomas, that's right. It was Thomas. Thomas. And why did he say that to Thomas? Because he was doubting. Because he was doubting. Because he says, if I get to touch him, I'll believe. And Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without seeing or without touching, if you will. Love and believe. Love and believe. That refers to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now notice what Peter says here. He says here, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. Another way of saying that is you have joy inexpressible. Uh, You greatly rejoice in joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy, you know what that means? That means I can't put it into words. I can't put the joy I have for my salvation, I cannot truly put it into words. Can you do that, Ronnie? Can you take a, an unbeliever and say, let me, let, me, let me explain to you the joy that I have? It's, you can't do it, can you? Because unless you, that's one, unless you experience it, you really don't understand that joy. You don't know what it is. And even then, you can't put it in words. It is so great. Our joy, our inheritance, we're going to heaven. Jesus died for us. You put all that together and try to explain your emotions, you can't do it. That's what Peter says. You have joy inexpressible. It's a joy that transcends all earthly emotions. And all earthly experiences. And full of glory means you have this joy and you give the utmost praise for it. The utmost praise. And then finally we have a surety. A surety in a present deliverance. That's verse 9 if you look at that. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Referring here to the salvation of our souls. And he says, um, obtaining as the outcome. But there's a, a confidence in this. What are we sure about when it comes to our salvation? What are we sure about? I'll put it another way. What are we sure that we've been saved from? Hell and eternity. I mean, hell and we are assured of 
Okay, so we've been saved from hell, so we've been saved from sin's penalty, right? We have been saved from sin's penalty, all right? And I think you mentioned, did you mention heaven? Okay, we have an assurance that we're going to heaven, so we have an assurance that we've been saved in the future from the presence of sin. So we've been saved from the penalty of sin. Someday we will be saved from the presence of sin, but we've also been saved from what else about sin? The power of sin. That's what he's saying here. We've obtained part of our salvation already. Our salvation being saved from the power of sin and from the presence of sin. But we have an inheritance waiting for us, and that's the final part of our salvation, and that's when we get to heaven. Notice we have not been saved from the world of unbelievers. We have not been saved from the world of unbelievers. We've been saved from the, the uh, penalty for our sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin over us individually, but we've not been saved from the world of unbelievers. We have not been saved from evil, uh, if you will. Um, all right, so kind of summarize all that up and take us into the next section. Rejoicing, as Peter has described, is being a follower of Jesus. It's being a follower of Jesus. Uh, remember when we were in Hebrews, we talked about this verse here, 12.2. The writer said, Looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we talked about this. So did Jesus have joy to be shamed and to be nailed to the cross? Was that joyful for him? Was being nailed to the cross joyful for the Lord? What is his joy here? What's the joy being talked about? Doing the will of the Father and the joy of looking forward to what? Well, yeah, sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God, being back in heaven, being with the Father for the joy set before him, for the joy that was in front of him, for the joy that he was looking forward to. He had the joy at the time of the cross, knowing, knowing that he was going to heaven. Not joy in suffering. Was that Chris? Didn't he ask the, for the cup to be taken? Yes, he did. And the father said, no. Okay. But yet, he still had the joy of knowing where he was going to be. So is the, the joy, if you will, of the, of the reward that he was going to be at the, at the end of this whole difficult time. Now, Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. Jesus had the kind of joy that he could walk this earth, do what the Father wanted him to do, and have the joy knowing that he was obeying the Father and he was going to return to the Father. We have his joy in us. That is the same kind of joy. We have the joy looking forward to the fact that we obey him now, but we do it 
in my case, imperfectly, okay? So I have that joy, though, but the greater joy is that I'm going to be with him one of these days. And not just with him to sit down for five minutes and then something else. It's for eternity. That's the joy that we have. We can and we should have joy at all times. Not the joy of circumstances. Not being joyful that we hurt or suffer. But no matter what we can have, we can have the joy of our salvation, our inheritance. We should always have that, folks. No matter what you're going through. Visiting the doctors, Wilson. All right? That cannot, that cannot bring a whole lot of happiness when they go, well, try this one now and try that one now and, and everything like that. But you can always have the joy of your salvation. Always have the joy that this is temporary. What we're going through now is temporary. If you're going through persecution, it's temporary. Our inheritance is eternal. Is eternal. You know, it's a paradox that Christians can truly grieve over suffering and at the same time have joy. One writer put it this way, sadness and gladness can exist side by side for Christians. All right, any questions on that before we get into chapter, uh, verse 10? Any questions? Okay, let's look at verses uh, 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. In the last passage, in this last passage, if you will, before Peter gets into the practical outworking of our salvation during the times of trials, and that's what's going to happen. When we get to next week, verse 13, we are going to get into Peter's practical outworking of this salvation he's been talking about and it's going to be talking about during the times of trials i was asked last week a, a question and the question was if i remember correctly what is a christian's duty in the face of evil what is a christian's duty in the face of evil now when i get a question like that i have to reframe it for myself because i don't see anything about christian's duty in the bible so that word is not good so I, I changed that to God's will. What is God's will in the face of evil? Well, Peter's not talking about all evil right here, so I'm going to frame it in Peter's uh, letter, and it's going to be called, What is, a, uh, what is a, a Christian's responsibility, or what is God's will for a Christian who is in the face of persecution? Now, that's, that's a good question that comes right into what we're talking about. Well, Peter's going to start answering that question next week in verse 13. So uh, I, I want to keep you coming back for questions like that one. All right. 
But Peter gives us one last reminder here of how great this salvation is. Now, we talk about the great salvation because of our inheritance. We talk about how great salvation is because of joy. And Peter's given us one last reminder here about how great our salvation is. And he does it by describing four beings. Four beings that also understand and take part in the greatness of salvation. So we're going to understand it in terms of the Old Testament prophets, in terms of the Holy Spirit, in terms of the New Testament apostles, and in terms of the angels, in terms of the angels. So let's look at verse 10 again, and beginning of 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time. Now, he says, as to this salvation. What salvation is he talking about? As to this salvation. What is the this? We look at the context, and it's the salvation he's been talking about. He's looking, as to this salvation about our inheritance, as to this salvation that we are supposed to have such great joy about, all right? As to this salvation, that's the salvation he's talking about. One he's already um, given a whole lot of information about. So, referring to this salvation that he's been talking about, what did the Old Testament prophesy that Peter is specifically referring to here? What did they refer, the Old Testament prophets, what did they testify about? What did they prophesy about? The coming Messiah. Okay, the coming of Christ because of the grace that's coming to us. Talking about the grace that's going to come to you. Now, Old Testament prophets, they, they prophesied a lot about Babylon and this and that and, and a whole lot. But they prophesied a lot about the grace coming to you and me. Not grace coming to them, but grace coming to us. There's a lot of prophecies. And if you remember Don's teaching Isaiah, all right, a lot of prophecies about what's going to happen with us and the grace coming to us. They saw it as coming one day. Yeah, they spoke of God's love and they spoke of God's grace towards Israel. However, they specifically told of the future grace that would come to Peter's readers, to the church, to you, and to I. They saw it as future. What we see today in the present, they saw it when they were in the past. Not just for Israel, but for all mankind, all nations, even the Gentiles. Now, God's grace was always available in the Old Testament times. It was always available. To Noah in Exodus 22, 27, God said, I am gracious, speaking to Noah. To Jonah, um, let's look at what Jonah has to say here. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, it begins, uh, this is Jonah. Then he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish. Since I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, 
and one who relents of disaster. You know, from the beginning in Eden, from the very first sin, salvation has always been available to sinners, and it's always been by grace. It's always been that way. But, but the Old Testament prophets, they knew that the greatest manifestation of God's grace was sometime in the future with the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. They knew that that would be the greatest manifestation of his grace. Uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 45, let me read that to you. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 20. Um, some of this will probably come back to you uh, after Don's teaching. Isaiah wrote, Gather yourselves and come. Come together, you survivors of the nations. They have knowledge who carry around their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and present your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this long ago? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. And a Savior. Looking forward to the day that we have today. He said, there is none except me. He said, turn to me and be saved. Now, this is in the Old Testament. Turn to me and be saved. So, God was offering salvation then to people. But he's also talking about today. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Now, is that talking about today? Or is that talking about even further into the future? Yeah, so the prophets saw their time, they saw our time, and they even see another time, another area, uh, which we will call the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. People will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. That's in Isaiah. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this. Uh, Don taught us a lot uh, when he was in Isaiah about what the prophets had to say about what was going to come into the future. Uh, the prophets revealed some facts about the Messiah and the coming salvation. Now, Peter mentions it. When Peter says, uh, let me read that to you. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches of inquiries, seeking to know, seeking to know. And down at uh, the last part of 11, he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The sufferings and the glories to follow. The first time Jesus Christ came was what? The sufferings. The second time he comes are going to be what? The glories to follow. So Peter here is referring to the prophets prophesied Jesus' first coming and his second coming, both of them. And in these prophecies, what did we learn? Well, Don taught us that the Messiah would suffer and be crucified. That's in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. 
and the Messiah would triumph and rule one of these days. That's in Psalm 2, 6 through 9 and 16:10. And that the Messiah would save, that the Messiah would be a savior. Uh, look here at Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. Uh, and, and Don spent some good time on this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, uh, John or Don taught us that uh, that right there was quoted in the New Testament. Do you remember who quoted that in the New Testament? <coughs> Jesus did. Okay, and where was he when he quoted it? In the synagogue. In the synagogue. That's right. And what did he do? He actually read that, and then he sat down, and then what did he say? Today, this is That's right. Today, this has, been, this has been completed. This is it. Basically saying, I am the one. I am that one. Now, we know that these prophets knew a lot, but not everything. But you know what? It was enough to make them want more. They wanted to know more. So, Peter says here, they made careful searches and inquiries. Now, those words right there, those... You know, that's, that's my wife. I got to tell you, she's a detective. Anything goes on, if you want someone to make a careful search and inquiry and dig into it and dig in until she gets the answer, that's Linda. That's what these guys did. They were like, I want to know. So they searched and they looked to find more information. They looked into their own writings. What did God say to them? What has God said to me? And the writings of the other prophets, the writings in the Old Testament, they looked in them, trying to find out more information. The, the words imply they did it with intensity. They did it with diligence. They really went, they were interested in something in the future. Jesus referred to them in Matthew thirteen seventeen when he said, For truly I say to you that many prophets... And righteous people long to see what you see. And that's me. He's talking about long to see me. And did not see it. And to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. You know in, in the. Um, at Christmas time. When we read the Christmas story. We often read about one Israelite. Who was just like this. Do you know who that is? Someone who was looking and looking. And they finally said, I see it. Simeon. Simeon, yeah, Simeon. When, when he saw the baby Jesus. See, there was something specific that the prophets wanted to know. What was that? Verse 11. Seeking to know what person and what time. All right? So they had enough to know there's a Messiah coming. All right? There's going to be the, the, if you will, the bad times. And then the good times, there's going to be the suffering and the glory, if you will. But who is that and when is it going to happen? And probably the, the clearest example of a prophet looking at this occurs with the last Old 
Testament prophet. Which is whom? Who's the last Old Testament prophet? This is a good one to make you think. Who? John. John. That's right. John the Baptist. He's the last Old Testament. Well, you say, wait a minute. He lived during the times of Jesus. But he was still in Old Testament times. All right? Still in Old Testament. He's the last Old Testament prophet. Remember what, what John said when he saw Jesus walking? The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, where do you get that information? That came from directly from God. It came from directly to God. He was a prophet, and God gave him a prophecy. Now, did John really understand what he was saying? Did he really understand it when he said, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Did he really understand that? Well, I'm going to tell you something. I don't think he understood it completely. He didn't understand all what he said and meant. Because there was a time when he inquired if the Lamb of God is one spoken about in the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and if Jesus is the one. Remember uh, Matthew 11, begin verse 3. Now while in prison, John heard about the works of Christ, and he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? Well, way back when, he already said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now John is saying, Are you the coming one? The coming one would be the Messiah, or are we to look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Those who are blind receive sight, and those who limp walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, and those who are deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, he said to them, I am fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. But John the Baptist was, a, was an example of having a lot of information, but not having these last two real bits of information, who and when. Um, there was one prophet that uh, did a pretty good job of telling us when. Remember who that was? Pastor Farrell taught about him recently. Who was it? Daniel. 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 And Daniel was one of those prophets that when he was given a prophecy, would ask God for an interpretation and understanding and wanted to know more. He's one of those. You know, we have even greater revelation today than any of those prophets. More revelation today of Jesus Christ. So don't you think we ought to be more desirous of knowing all we can about our salvation? The prophets were interested in it. We should be interested in it. All right, the Old Testament prophets. Also, the Holy Spirit. Excuse me here, I missed a page. Verse 11. Seeking to know what person or time, the Spirit of Christ. Now, who's the Spirit of Christ? Who would be the Spirit of Christ? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Within them was indicating as he, the Holy Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. The Holy Spirit inspired their prophecy of this great 
salvation. Peter's going to talk about it in his next letter when he says in chapter 2, verse 1, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Holy Spirit was not just speaking to the prophets to tell them about their time, their sake, or Israel's sake. It was also for us today. And you know what? They knew it. The prophets knew it. They knew it wasn't just for them. They knew that they were prophesying for people in the future. Can you stop? I mean, stop, just stop and think about this. When the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied, these future events, they were thinking about us. They were thinking about us. You know, the same we might realize when it comes to the book of the Revelation. Think about this. How much inquiry has been made trying to identify the details of the rapture, the details of the tribulation, and the details of the second coming of Christ, and then even our Lord's eternal kingdom. Think of all the time and study has gone into that to read the book of Revelation and try to fill in the gaps, try to fill in the details. The book of Revelation was written to give us hope and some facts about the future, some facts. Imagine how much hopeful, helpful it's going to be for those living in the end times to read the book of Revelation and say we are filling in the details because we're living the details at this time. That's us now. We can look at what the Old Testament prophets prophesied and we can say they were talking about us, our time, our time, real time. Also, if you look at verse 12, Peter wrote, announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Holy Spirit was also involved in the gospel preaching of the apostles. I don't know about you, but it seems to me to be awful obvious that something that the Holy Spirit is so involved in, even as we studied before, causing our salvation, if it's so important to the Holy Spirit, maybe it ought to be important to us. Important to us. Another one involved in all this, the New Testament apostles. Peter writes, In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The apostles were the first proclaimers of the gospel. Who was the the first proclaimer of the gospel after Jesus Christ ascended to heaven? Hint, day of Pentecost. It's Peter. It was Peter. Peter and the apostles were the first to preach the gospel. They were the first to have the gospel teaching. The, The salvation, our salvation is so great that God gave it to the apostles as their main message. That was their main message. Jesus said to them, go and preach. Go and preach the gospel. Their main message. 
their main message that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, is the God of salvation. Can you think of a more important message than the gospel to bring to mankind? I can't. You know, think about how wonderful it is for a doctor in the ER to save a physical life. How great it is for a fireman or a paramedic saving a physical life at the scene of an automobile accident. How wonderful and great it is for a policeman entering an active shooter scene and keeping many from being injured. Since this gospel of salvation that the apostles preached is a message that comes from them in the New Testament, from the prophets in the New Testament, and by extension, evangelists and pastor teachers, and by extension to us who do the ministry, all right, think of all that. Can you think of a more important work for you and me? So that's the apostles. And finally, the angels. The angels. He ends with things into which angels long to look. Now, this is one of those that is hard to fill in all the details. Because I invited a couple of angels to come this morning and they didn't show up. Or maybe they're here and I don't know it. Okay? But anyway, the angels. And, and the word that's used here. Things into which angels long to look. That, that word there, long to look, that right there is the idea of really intensely peering into something. If you could imagine, if you're standing at the, the, the top of the Grand Canyon and looking down, and looking down and trying to get all that you can see right there, and intensely looking at it, that's what the angels do. They do it with a strong interest. They're stretching their necks. They're intense. They have a great intent here, trying to find out something. Even the angels, folks, are greatly interested in our salvation. They are greatly interested in a salvation that they cannot experience. Now think about that. They can't experience it. So they're wondering, what is this? And there's those angels that don't even... um, have the opportunity to be saved and the other angels will never be saved because they don't need to be saved. God has used them. He's used the good angels in the message of salvation. We talk about that at Christmas and he uses them to to minister to saved ones. Remember the parable of the lost sheep we talked about last week. Okay, the parable of the lost lost sheep. (coughs) Shepherd has a hundred sheep. And one of them is lost. He goes out to find them. This is in Luke chapter 15. And he finds the one, puts him on his shoulder, and brings him home. And there is great rejoicing. They have a great party because the sheep was lost and now he's been found. Um, yeah, would you do that, please, Jane? Okay. Now, what did Jesus say about that parable? Jesus in that parable says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Who do you think 
has all that joy in heaven when a sinner repents. It's the angels. We look at the book of Revelation and other writings. It's the angels who are rejoicing. They rejoice for our salvation. The angels are that much interested in it. So, when you have Old Testament prophets who are looking into our salvation, you have the Holy Spirit interested in our salvation. You have the New Testament apostles and following that, even down to you and I being evangelists, sharing the gospel, interested in salvation. You even have the angels interested in our salvation. That should say there's something about our salvation that we should get excited about, folks, because all these other beings are excited about it. Peter is writing to Christians facing the worst of circumstances. What words of comfort does he bring? What do they need to remember during those difficult times? What's going to get them through it? Well, I'll tell you, not focusing on the the here and the now, but their great salvation that's waiting for them. This is the setup that Peter gives us and next week he's going to start and say, now, because of this, this is what you are to do during your uh, persecution. Uh, any questions or comments? We have a minute or two left. Okay, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, oh, I give her of our salvation the one who's got our inheritance waiting for us. God, may we just give you praise and thanks because you chose us, you saved us, and our final salvation, our inheritance is waiting for us, and and you have it waiting for us, Heavenly Father. And one of these days, you're going to take us to it. And we look forward to that, Heavenly Father. So we can only give you praise. And God, I pray for us, that you would remind us every day about how great this salvation is, and God remind us to share that with others who do not know it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.